That's Mark 13, verse 14 to 23. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Well, this morning, we get to turn to Mark chapter 13, and we are in our second week in this chapter as we're working our way through the whole of this book together. I know we have a number of guests here this morning. Well, here you go, all right? You get to jump into the thick of it. Six years ago, I preached through the book of Daniel, and when I came to Daniel chapter 9, I shared with the congregation that commentators are agreed that that that, that chapter in Daniel is the most difficult to understand, least agreed upon text in all of Daniel. And the one thing I found in reading all the commentators, that's the only thing they agreed on. That they just don't agree with each other, literally. I, I, I listened to Alistair Begg preach on Daniel 9, and he preached an excellent sermon series through the book of Daniel, helped me greatly. And when he came to chapter 9, Alistair Begg kept talking about his three friends who had written three commentaries on this passage, and yet all three of his friends disagreed with one another. And the reason why he brought it up is because he was about to preach a sermon that disagreed with all three of them. And here he is. They're his friends, fellow brothers in Christ. Listen, I barely have three friends who are willing to read Daniel chapter 9. And uh, so I don't even know who disagrees or what, but I know there's a lot to go on there. And here we are in our passage today in Mark chapter 13. It's so contentious, it's so difficult to understand, it's so, so, such a variety of interpretations, we can't even figure out how we want to break down the chapter. So actually this morning, we had just the first portion of what we're actually going to cover today. We're going to actually go beyond even what was read as we studied this text. Joel Fair and I, and read through the commentaries and so on, have come to realize I think it actually extends beyond where we broke it off there. So we're actually going to look at verses 14 all the way through verse 31. Like I told you, guests, we're going to welcome to Cross Point Coast this morning. We're going to pay attention to the word together. We're only the we're in this Olivet discourse, and I just want to upfront claim the right to disagree with myself. Uh, I claim the right for you to disagree with me. Uh, I just don't claim the right that we can disagree with the Word and what He intends to communicate to us. May we be humbled before that. When I preached Daniel nine, I actually wrote in my notes, "I like Sam Storm's interpretation better than my own." And then I went on to preach my own. 
Well, today, I would like to vindicate Sam Storms and say that I think I not only like his interpretation of this passage, I think I also agree with his interpretation of this passage. Sam Storms, a a, a wonderful pastor from whom I've learned much. But as I read, reread the passage, there were a couple things in this text that I just couldn't shake to try and make sense of all these words and things that I'm just not familiar with. There were a few core things that almost every commentator I read kind of glossed over. And I'm like, why didn't you talk about that more? That's a really big deal. All commentaries, but literally one. Uh, A commentary by R.T. France. He's an Anglican scholar and pastor who wrote the Mark volume for the New International Greek Testament Commentary. So if you want to just pick that up for this weekend, uh, wonderful Friday evening read after date night, right? Uh, Much of what I share today is I find to be in alignment with R.T. France, but I didn't find it in R.T. France. I just kept reading it, and then I read France, and I'm like, yeah, I I think something like that. And so I think the best thing that we could do is pray. Let's pray and just ask for the Father's help. Heavenly Father, we trust you. We know that you have given to us by the Son your word. This is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. On that hill, through this letter, and to us today. So maybe we submit ourselves to you. You have a truth to communicate to us. And Lord, we trust that your spirit is at work among the people that you would not only help us to understand something, maybe even come to an interpretation that's helpful, but but that also we would be confirmed in the faith, gifted faith, given the gifts of your spirit, filled up with joy, transformed, leaving behind sin and going forward in joyous mission, Lord, that your spirit would do that by your word in the midst of the congregation this morning. And if you would do that, by the time we're done together, we'll say miracle has happened. You've changed us. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the Olivet Discourse, three weeks together, verses 1 through 13. Last week we looked at that. It really, it's an opening question and a brief little answer. Now we're in verses 14 through 31. And here we're going to look at the coming tribulation and the glory of the Son of Man. And then we're going to look Not actually next week. We're going to go out of order a little bit. Mark Schladorn will be preaching from Mark chapter 14 next week while I'm traveling. And then I'm going to come back the week after and we'll wrap up this little mini-series within Mark by looking at the coming day when the Lord returns. My own interpretation is that the majority, just to be up front, all right, I told you, I reserve the right to disagree with me, so you can too. My own interpretation is that majority of Jesus' focus in this passage is in reference to his initial statement in verse 2 that the temple is going to be utterly destroyed. And then he describes that for the majority of the remainder of the chapter. So Jesus, he's come out of the temple. That's the context of chapter 12. He's now then coming into verse 13. He's coming out of the temple. After teaching there, he's been facing the interrogation of the leaders in Jerusalem, specifically an interrogation taking place in the temple, and he's shown much of what he's found in the city, much of what he's found in the temple, to be hypocrisy and faithlessness. Not everything, but he's found much there that's faithless. Now Jesus, the very image of the invisible God. So it's not inappropriate to say the Lord walked out of the temple 
and up to the Mount of Olives. He took his seat there on the east side of the city, standing high above Jerusalem and the temple, and he, in full view of the temple, pronounces judgment on the temple. The beginning of our chapter, in verse 2, you can see it there. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The Lord himself is about to tear down his house. It's a big deal, right? Now, in the next verse, Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to Jesus, and they ask a very specific two-part question. In, cha- in verses 3 and 4, they asked, they sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And, second part, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? When will it be, and how will we see it? Okay? When and what? Last week, Jesus warned them of the things that are not a sign of the destruction. Specifically, there's going to be wars, Rumors of wars, earthquakes, destruction, and that means the time has not yet come. These things do not announce the when, nor are they the signs of the what. They are simply an ongoing pattern that is common to man that often makes us nervous and think it's the end of the world. Okay? These are birth pains common in history. He also warns them that in the midst of these times leading up to the destruction of the temple, they themselves are going to suffer many persecutions as they bear witness to Christ and his gospel. They're going to be called in front of governors and into synagogues. They're going to be called to be faithful, and the Holy Spirit will be with them, and they'll bear witness to Christ and his gospel. That's what's going to happen, he tells them. Now, as we come to verse 14 and what follows, are you with me? Are you in verse 14? Your Bible open? We're, with, we're now in verse 14, and what follows, Jesus is beginning to explain in some vivid detail the when and the what. He didn't answer that in verses 1 through 13. Now he's going to. The when and the what of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And it's over these details, this vivid description, that readers of this passage have often disagreed But before we turn to our own study this morning, I want to share with you three things, three observations from my own process of study. Not three observations from my interpretation, but three observations from my own process that I honestly learned this week as I was studying this passage. Before I really opened any of the commentaries, there are a few things I began to realize as I read this chapter over and over and over again. I've got my iPad here, and I've got my text, and I've got the PDF, and I'm reading it, I'm reading it, and I'm underlining, I'm underlining, I'm noticing, I'm noticing, paying attention to the Word. So that's what we're supposed to do, right? Pay attention to the words of the Word. First of all, I noticed this, and I'm going to put it this way. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is Jesus who is speaking. The Father has said, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. Jesus is speaking, he's communicating, and what he says is supposed to be understood by those who hear it. Specifically, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They were supposed to listen to him, hear and understand. But it's hard, I found, in my reading, it's hard to read the Bible and not hear the voice of my pastor growing up. And I'm literally doing it to the kids in the room right now, right? I hope. It's hard not to read the Bible and see the study notes in your Bible or the tradition or denomination or end times theology that you've adopted on the way and not actually hear the words that are in front of you, right? 
As I read, I wanted to hear more of the voice of Jesus to his disciples. I really wanted to listen what Mark had recorded and the Spirit had inspired for us. But as I did, I found myself repeatedly being interrupted, me and my iPad on my back porch, reading there. Yeah, I, that's where I do a lot of my sermon study, on the back porch. Um, and, and I'm reading there, and I keep getting interrupted, and I keep hearing other voices, all right? I mentioned an example last week in verse 7 where it talks about wars and rumors of wars. I read it the first two or three or four times through, and all I could hear is my growing up years around the church, perhaps you heard the same thing, that that means the end is coming. Wars and rumors of wars, right? Literally, no. <laughs> Like, that's, he actually says, that is not a sign of the end. That's just birth pains. And, and I had to interrupt the voices in my head to pay attention to the words that are there. He actually says, don't be alarmed, this must take place, but the end is not yet. Wars and rumors and wars are not a sign that the end is here. All right? Wars and rumors of wars are explicitly from Jesus, a sign that we're looking for, but it's not the sign in answer to what signs should we look for. <laughs> you see? Do you know how hard it is to read a passage over and over again and not just hear what other people have said? If you've ever read the Bible, you know how hard that is. And it's good. I'm so glad I've had many teachers. Let me encourage you as we walk our way through, listen to the words of Jesus. Try to notice when you've become distracted, you're no longer listening, you're thinking about what others have said. Some tradition, teacher, theological interpretation, they aren't bad. Those aren't bad things. But as John Piper said, I love this, commentaries can be sermon killers. Precisely because instead of helping the congregation better understand the words of the word, they can draw our attention away from the actual words that the Spirit has actually written down. Some commentaries can be sermon killers. Make sure you've done your work before you craft come open, is what he's saying. The, first, the second thing, as it is written. The second sentence in the Gospel of Mark is this. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. What is the context of the Gospel of Mark? What's the setting? I would say that even more than first century Israel, even more than Israel and Judea under Roman occupation, the most helpful context for the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is the Old Testament. That is the context. The second set of words in the Gospel of Mark are the Old Testament. When Jesus speaks, it would seem that more often than not, he's speaking in what you might call first century Jewish memes. Bear with me for a moment. He's constantly making short little references to little turns of phrase, little imagery that's taken straight from the holy writings of the Old Testament. This happens all the time in my house. Like, way, way, way too much in my house. I hope my children are listening. One of the kids will be talking to another one of the kids in my house, and then I'll notice the other kid starts laughing and saying something back, and I don't understand what's happening. I'm lost. I'm clueless. I, and I ask, what, is, what does that mean? And you know what their response is? It's a meme. Oh, it's a meme. <laughs> well then, <laughs> that was helpful. And I'll follow up with, I, I figured that but what does it actually mean? What are you actually 
talking about? I know it's an insider sort of language, a saying, an image, but can you help me to understand what you're saying and what you're talking about? Well, the Old Testament, the writings of Scripture, were something like holy memes, symbols and images and phrases. Jesus would pick them up, use them, and his disciples would quickly catch on because they were in the Old Testament as much as Jesus was. Just like if I was in Instagram as much as my kids were, I'd be right with them. So what should I do if I want to understand my kids? (laughs) Right? What should I do if I want to understand the scriptures? I should get in the Old Testament if I want to understand the sort of the common language and imagery of Jesus and the disciples. If I'm going to understand Jesus, I need to understand his scriptures. I think that there's a specific caution for us. Jesus is speaking here before any of the New Testament was written. Here's what that means. That means that we will not understand what Jesus says here by reading later scriptures. We're going to understand what Jesus says here, the references that he's making, not by reading Revelation, but by reading Isaiah. The disciples, and we should understand what Jesus is saying here, the disciples didn't have Revelation even though one of them would write it. The disciples had Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah and all of the teachings of the prophets and the Psalms, and that is what Jesus used to communicate to them. So be careful not to read the other prophecies of the New Testament back on what Jesus says here, but read the, other, the old prophecies and pay attention to what Jesus says here. Third, there's a phrase in here that says, let the reader understand. It's my estimation that any interpretation of the Olivet Discourse must make sense of two sayings that are so clear and not Old Testament allusions, but just straightforward sentences of Mark and of of Jesus that aren't hyperbolic, they're not symbolic, they're not heavenly, they're just simple statements. What are the phrases? I've already said one in verse 14. It's let the reader understand. Here's the sentence in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What's going on there? Jesus didn't say that. Mark did. Jesus said, when this thing that I don't understand, abomination of desolation standing there happens, let the reader understand. Mark said that. It's like Mark's little phrase is an interpretive aid to his readers. He's winking at them. You know that thing that Jesus said? Let the reader understand. Are you with me? Are you paying attention? Because that's really important. He's saying, he's recounting the words of Jesus that the people of Jerusalem will see something abominable and destructive. And he's saying, you catch that? Y'all should know by now By the time I'm writing this to you, what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is giving a prophecy that he is recorded here in about AD 33, just before his death. And Mark is writing this gospel just a few short years before AD 70. Do you see? So Jesus says this phrase, when the abomination of desolation standing there ought not to be. Then Mark, about 30 years later, says, y'all know what I'm talking about? If you're paying attention, you know what he was talking about there because it's kind of happening right now. Let the reader understand. 
it would seem that this likely refers to some vile destruction that General Titus and his men would bring upon the destruction of Jerusalem. Perhaps even some specific atrocity he perpetuated during the course of his brutal siege and the sacking of the city. The point is this. Some commentators understand verse 14 is that Jesus has ceased talking about the destruction of Israel. He's talking about some desolation that's coming at the end of time. But if he's referring to some far future unholy atrocities by some future antichrist that will accompany a future tribulation prior to the return of Christ, why did Mark say, let the reader understand? How could they understand something that's not going to happen for like 3,000 years or something? What you would have is the readers understanding, not understanding. And all the people who have read the scriptures since Mark recorded this gospel to us would still not understand. To this day, we haven't seen it yet. And then someday, finally, some small group of readers would finally understand right before it would be fulfilled. I just can't shake that Mark's phrase here, this let the reader understand, must mean that whatever Jesus is referring to happened sometime right after he wrote it. So that the readers understood what he was talking about because it was basically happening right then and there. The second thing I just couldn't shake as I read this passage is this. This generation will not pass away. Verse, four, verse 30. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is the most pointed, I think clear, non-looking at some sort of Old Testament quotation passage that we have in the gospel, in this section of the gospel of Mark. Straightforwardly, on its face, all these things read most plainly refers to everything Jesus has been saying so, so far, up to verse 30. The wars, the earthquakes, the persecution, the abomination, the rapid and tragic flight from Jerusalem, the false prophets, the the tribulation with the sun and the moon and the stars falling from the heavens. I don't know what that means, but I know what it means when it says something won't happen, something will happen before the generation passes away. You see? So I'm going to take what I know what it means as a guide in order to understand the things that I find more complicated in the passage. All these things will take place before the generation of Peter James, John, Andrew, who Jesus is talking to when he says all these things will happen before this generation passes away. There are so many things that I could list that I'm so tempted to understand in so many different ways about the end of the world, the return of Jesus in our chapter this morning. But when Jesus says that the generation that he's addressing right there on that real mountaintop overlooking Jerusalem on that day, just before his death and his resurrection, so many interpretive temptations that I have just become for me not possible when the when and what question is answered. Like before, before the generation passes away. That, that's, that's the when answer that Jesus gives. I just couldn't shake it. And so those two plain statements become an interpretive guide for me as I read the rest of the passage. And like I said, I think R.T. France take those, takes those the most plainly of all the commentators that I read. Two things, give attention to the words of Jesus. Three things, Jesus' words have an interpretive context, and it's the Old Testament. And there are a couple statements that are so specific and clear, it's hard to, hard to shake them. Go ahead and try. Go ahead and try and make sense of it. I, I just don't think it works. 
So here we are to the interpretation. This is difficult for me. Not because the interpretation is difficult, it is. But here's what's difficult. I don't want to just stand here and teach you. Like this isn't a seminary course. It's not the purpose of preaching and gathering in this place. The purpose is here is that the word would be held up for you. And that you wouldn't just learn, but you would be encouraged, equipped, transformed, called to repentance and faith. I am going to trust that the Spirit will do that work while I think we've got a little bit of interpretation to do. Okay? So let's do some interpretation. Let's, let's do a little bit of hard work of understanding and pray that the Spirit would do a work of transformation in the midst of the congregation. We're going to begin in verses 14 through 23. All right? It feels like work, doesn't it? All right, let's give attention. Look at verses 14 through 23. And he starts talking about an abomination of desolation. What's that talking about? That's not like something, if Jesus said that, I said, what are you talking about? He said, it's a meme. I'd be like, I believe you. Because I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Just like when my kids are talking. Unless I know Daniel 11.31. And in Daniel 11.31, it says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. This is the most widely, in, th- that passage from Daniel is most widely interpreted as the work of Antiochus Epiphanes in, eight, in 168 years B.C. And that was when he conquered Jerusalem, And he enters the temple and he sets up a statue to Zeus and sacrifices a pig on the altar. We have a historical record of that happening. And I'll tell you, that sounds like an abomination and a desolation of the sacrifice. It fits. So what's Jesus doing here? He's taking this prophecy that's been fulfilled and he's taking it and he's applying it again in a near future repeat offense. There's some great evil, some future conqueror who's going to come and he's going to perpetuate and cause us to hearken back to Antiochus Epiphanes. Those who see this conqueror come are going to be like, man, that's like when Antiochus came just about 200 years ago. This time, it'll lead to something even greater than a desecration. It will lead to an utter destruction. That very, to this very day, the stones that that conqueror who came, you know, his name to be General Titus, who would become Emperor Titus, we know that the heat threw down the stones to where they, they'd still lie there, crumbled today. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house or take anything out. Let the one who's in the field turn back, not turn back to get his cloak. You know, I hear that and it sounds like language reminiscent of the Israelites' flight out of Egypt. When the time comes, run. When you see the sign, when the when is now, run. You hear wars, don't worry about it. You hear earthquakes, it's just rumblings. When you hear a conquering general spouting threats of destruction and sacrilege, it's time to get out of Jerusalem. It seems plain as day. The disciples asked for a when and some sign to know it's coming. This is the when and this is the what. And it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad for women and children who are caught in the terrible judgment. Who don't hear the words of Jesus. Don't heed him with faith. 
I'll spare you this morning the details of the account, but if you read the account of Josephus that records the atrocities of the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, Jesus' words here are not hyperbole. They are accurate descriptions of chaos and horror. Again, this, there just isn't a word or a phrase in Jesus' account from verse 17 through 20 that isn't lifted from somewhere in the Old Testament. It's, it's just meme upon me. It's like when I look at my kids' text threads, you know, and it's just a pile of emojis. And I don't even know what half of the emojis are supposed to mean, right? This is just a pile of quotations. Jesus is communicating with people who understand it. And particularly verse 21. It's a particularly important passage. In verse 21, then if anyone says, look, here's the Christ. Look, here he is. Don't believe him. And I, I remember Jeremiah 6, 14. They've healed the wound of my people lightly, the false prophets, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You can just hear the false prophets in the day of the destruction of the temple saying, oh, don't worry about it. I know the bad guys are coming, but the Lord is for us, and it's the temple. Surely he won't destroy the temple. Peace, peace, when it's actually arrogance and superstition. Their shouts of peace, peace are not of those who have actually taken refuge in the Lord. See, the Lord has pronounced judgment upon a people and a city who have broken covenant and failed to repent at the coming of both the prophet John the Baptist and the Christ whom he had proclaimed. There will be judgment no matter what false messiahs or prophets say. Peace, peace. There is no peace. The abomination of desolation is a particular and definite sign that the time has come. Flee. All right. We're ready for 24. 24 through 27. This passage speaks of the Son of Man. Look how it begins. In verse 24 it says, But in those days, after that tribulation... Then it talks about sun being darkened, moon not given light, stars falling from heaven. In those days after that tribulation, think of brackets around a section of time. The brackets around a section of time, in common English language, we say, like, those days. Well, that's just common language. It's here recorded for us in Greek in the original language, translated for us to English. Brackets around a section of time is those days. Then, if you think of the whole of the section inside of those days, and you think of a little section inside of it called that tribulation. So those days are broken up into two parts. That tribulation and after that tribulation, you see. We have the days that are leading up to the destruction of the temple are made up of two parts, that tribulation and here after that tribulation, all inside of those days that Jesus is talking about, including the destruction of the temple. Why do I say this? Because it will be very tempting to make this section about the end of all time and the final return of Jesus. Like really, really, really tempting. So tempting, I agree that I'm allowed to disagree with myself at some point in the future here. Except for I just can't get past the fact that it says in those days, after that tribulation, right there in brackets. It's going to be very tempting 
But Jesus' own words seems to make it clear that he's still answering the disciples' initial question regarding the when and what of those days. What's going to happen there? What's going to be the signs? What's going to take place? In other words, he's still talking about the time frame leading up to and including the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, all of which took place by A.D. 70. He's still talking about something that's coming for him in just a matter of 30 or so years. And for the gospel author, it's here. It's just a year or two away. So look at verse 24 with me. What's going to happen in those days? Sun's darkened, moon not given light, stars falling from heaven. Again, Jesus is grabbing words and phrases, dare I say, memes and images from the Old Testament. Isaiah 13.10. Listen. For the stars of heavens and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed light. Like a, a, a near quote. What's Isaiah talking about there? Well, he's explicitly talking about judgment upon Babylon. So sometime around the judgment of Babylon, something happened that the prophet thought would be helpfully described as the moon going dark. What he's describing is the destruction of Babylon, its king, and the handing over of rule. Honestly, as a modern reader with a modern mind, I don't really get why the, why the scriptures use such vivid language like that. Just not at all how I, I think. In my study of Daniel six years ago, I noted that there seems to be a preference for poetic power over literal precision. And I'm a literal precision sort of guy. But the prophets seem to be a poetic power sort of people. One commentator points out that we use the word earth-shattering in a similar way. Earth-shattering? Nothing that we describe when we're talking about earth-shattering shatters any earths. Right? Poetic power over precision. But it works. In verse 25, Jesus does the same things. He, he refers back to Isaiah 34, verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away. The skies will roll up like a scroll. All the host shall fall as leaves fall from the vine. They're like leaves falling from the fig tree. He's talking about stars falling from the heavens. But it turns out they're all still there. A poetic power, imagery of something shaking in the cosmos. A transfer of power in Babylon. Specifically, in that case, he's talking about judgment around the surrounding nations and, and specifically a judgment upon Edom. So what is Jesus describing in verses 24 and 25 in his picking up of that language, plopping it down in the middle of our nice little Olivet discourse? He's describing the same thing that Isaiah described. He's describing a great upheaval that will lead to destruction of a people and a city and lead to a great transition of government and power. There are two things, at least, that are shocking by that description. First of all, that it's not a turning over of power of Jerusalem to Rome. It's not a turning over of power. It's an utter destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That's shocking. This is more about divine judgment than a transition in earthly governments. The second thing that's even more shocking is that the power that replaces Jerusalem and the temple isn't Rome. Mm. It's the Son of Man. That's who takes his seat, takes his place in what Jesus describes here. 
This is one of the most important things in the Old Testament that can help us to understand our passage this morning. Daniel, I encourage you, write this down in the margin of your Bibles. It is helpful no matter where you land. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Daniel 13, chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. All right, already language that's sitting there in our text. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and power and, and, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. Language, that's in our passage today. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom, one that will not be destroyed like what's happening to Jerusalem on that day. First note, verse 13, just like the Olivet Discourse, the Son of Man comes in the clouds, but his destination isn't earth. In that Daniel passage, it's not talking about the Son of Man coming to take some seat on the earth. He's actually talking about him coming before the Ancient of Days. He's talking about a transaction that's happening between Father and Son in the heavenly places. In verse 14, this is a description of a transfer of power from one kingdom to another. Jerusalem and the temple are no longer the seat nor the location of the throne. Neither are the systems or authorities previously known to be occupied and set up by the Lord himself in Jerusalem. Neither are those systems and authorities previously in that city a part of the new dominion. The dominion of the Son of Man. When Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, Jesus, the Son of Man, takes up all the power and all of the glory in heaven and moves swiftly to bring about an ultimate kingdom purpose. Now, are there other things that the Bible says about things like this later in later prophecies? Absolutely. We'll pay attention to them when we get to them. But right now, Daniel and Isaiah couple of the minor prophets and Jesus' words here are what we have to understand this. So that in verse 27, look at it with me. Verse 27, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. He's already sent out his apostles. He already did. Upon his resurrection and ascension, he sends out his apostles and he gifts his spirit so that the gospel would be made known among the nations. And now, upon the destruction of the temple and his occupation of a dominion place in the heavenly places, he will spend what we know to be the last two millennia and more sending out his messengers, whether they're proclaimers of the gospel and angelic helpers, it doesn't matter. The Lord is using all the means at his sovereign disposal in the dominion that is his to gather the people who belong to him. And it's working. The scattering the witnesses to the ends of the earth that not one of the elect who belong to him will fail to be brought into his kingdom. That's the work the sovereign dominion of the Son of Man taking his seat before the Ancient of Days. So here we are, verse 28. Our last little section this morning. Verse 28 through 31, we have the lesson of the fig tree. The fig tree, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gate. Jesus gives a quick little parable to affirm that it is possible to look into the future. 
and to affirm that these signs that he's given are as natural and understandable as predicting the seasons based off the observation of nature. And then we get to verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Again, I just couldn't shake it. Over and over again. The disciples asked for when, not just for signs. They asked when will this take place? This destruction you just now spoke of. Jesus tells them, in this generation, that's when. Plain words, not some quotation from a prophet that we need to go to Daniel to try to understand. Plain words. Words, not far off, not some distant end times future, soon, so keep watch. By the time Mark records this for his listeners, really soon, so soon, let the reader understand. You should see it happening already. Back in chapter 9, verse 1 in the Gospel of Mark, it says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What if that refers to the very same thing? The power of the kingdom of God, not only to go out into the regional nations, but to go out to the ends of the earth over the course of these last two millennia. And here we are at verse 31. Truly, I'm sorry, verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away. Mm -hmm. But my words will not pass away. It's like he's saying, if you didn't get it the first time with how plainly I spoke in verse 30, no hyperbole, no illusions, Jesus has been absolutely clear, and you can be absolutely confident that he means everything that he's actually said. His word is sure. Listen to him. Does Jesus in the New Testament speak about the return of Jesus, the end of time, and the great day of our Lord? Absolutely, he does. In fact, it's my understanding that he does so in the actually very next verse. That's two weeks away. Got some reading to do. All right? But I don't think that that's his primary subject matter thus far in our passage. It just isn't the when and it just isn't the what that Jesus has been talking about. And it's only if we import other prophecies and other revelation that is later that we come to blend them together into our passage today in a way that I think just winds up getting us mixed up and confused in what is basically a straightforward interpretation of the scripture in light of the Old Testament scriptures. I was talking with a friend just yesterday, and, and the encouragement is simply this, that one of the things that we do at Cross Point Coast, as much as we can, is pay attention to the words that are there. And that's all this is an effort to do. And if that is all that we get, whether the interpretation is right or not, the hope is that we've paid attention to the words that are there and come to an appreciation and understanding of what the Lord would have before us today. I want to close by giving you three final things to consider and apply from our passage today. The first thing I'd like you to apply is I'm tired. This has been a lot of work, a lot of reading, a lot of late nights and early mornings working on this passage. How are you supposed to apply that? (laughs) Honestly, one of the most important takeaways for me is simply this. I don't know the scripture the way I should. Why did I have to go get a help from a commentary to know that Isaiah said that stuff? Why is it news to so many in here that that's actually in our Bible, inspired by our holy God? We've got work to do. The whole church should be tired by next week. 
We've got reading to do. We've got work to do. We've got, we need to pour over the word and know it like Jesus knew it. And like his disciples who followed him knew it. May we be like him. Second, Jesus is the son of man in power and glory. That's inescapable. I know that in Mark, Jesus is the teacher and healer who walks around a countryside. That's wonderful. I know that Jesus is the one who dies on the cross in the place of sinners, that he gives his righteous life in the place of sinners like you and I, and he'll rise and he's going to take up life in victory over sin, death, and all that would raise its head at the at rebellion against the one true God. He's going to endure false, he, but in the process, he will not endure false, hypocritical worship, but he's come to call people to himself. And it begins with a warning to a remnant in Jerusalem. Note that. It's not a full and complete judgment, even though Jerusalem and the temple are utterly destroyed. He sends a warning into the city gates. There's a remnant that fled. Jewish men and women and children clinging to his word, remembered the word of the master, and they ran. We have record. Believers fled the city when so many stayed to celebrate Passover. And the word spreads to the four corners of the earth, and we can be confident that all who call upon his name from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be saved and kept unto that throne room. His words are trustworthy. Though we don't see him, his prophetic word, the Olivet Discourse, can confirm that he sits on the throne in two ways. We can be assured that he sits on the throne in two ways. He was right at every point regarding the utter destruction of Jerusalem and the utter destruction of the temple. He wasn't just right that it happened. He was right about when and how it happened in this very generation by the abominable and destructive power of Rome. He was right turns out he's a true prophet and secondly he was right that his word would spread like wildfire he was right it's worked shaking the very foundations of the earth his word has spread increased and multiplied spreading to the the four winds and it's still spreading friends the missionary movement of the people of God under our dominion king is evidence he does sit on a throne. He reigns in the heavenly places. And finally, God's purpose is not that we would suffer in judgment. Why would he give a warning? If his purpose was to judge, to judge the people who cling to him by faith rather than hypocrisy, self-righteousness. God's purpose is not that we would suffer in judgment, but that we would suffer like him in mission. We're going to suffer. <laughs> Why? To this day, we remain those scattered messengers. He gave warning to the disciples of precisely when they ought to flee the city, and they did. The Jerusalem council needed to close up shop and say, we need another city to be in. And instead, he scatters them over the face of the earth. We have evidence of the apostles going everywhere. So many Christians fled the approach of the Roman soldiers, while so many others who did not trust in the words of the Lord were destroyed in the city. God's purpose is not to bring pangs of judgment upon those who call upon his name, but rather if we'll listen to his words, we will with faith trust that the judgment has already fallen on him. There's no more judgment or anger reserved for his people. What he calls in this passage his elect. 
But as we scatter among the nations, we'll continue to be called before governors and kings, uh, before the self-righteous and the hypocritical, and we'll continue to be persecuted and misunderstood, sometimes by each other. But behold, the Lord is with us always, even to the end of the age. And friends, that's no small matter. The Son of Man, before the Ancient of Days, is reigning with all dominion and power. That one, the one to whom all authority has been given, is with you as you are scattered all the way to the end of the age. Heavenly Father, that's hope. And that means that there's something not right about so much of the way that we live. We have business to be about. We're sent with the angels to be messengers, proclaimers. And create a boldness, a joy, an expectation, a hope. There are, there are people who belong to the family that don't know it yet. And they would perish if they don't hear. Send us, Lord with a confidence that there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment reserved for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Lord, would we willingly suffer pouring out our lives daily for the sake of your glory among the church yet to be found. Pray that you would do your work. Do your work, correct our errors, guard our self-righteous thinking that we know what we're talking about. Help us cling to your word. Listen to you. Listen to your words and trust in your work in your church. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be right because you alone are righteous. But may we strive to care, to listen. Give us ears to hear, Lord, we pray. According to your grace, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.